2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel of the New Book. Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the pleasure of introducing to you Shabani Matani and Tim McLaughlin, and their book is Among the Braves. It was published by Hatchet Books in 2023, so it's a really new one. Shabani and Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us.
2: Oh, it's great that you're here. So just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and also how you came to write Among the Braves?
3: Uh, sure, I can start. Um, I uh, was the uh, Washington Post uh, Hong Kong and Southeast Asia bureau chief at the time. Uh, moved. Tim and I are, are, are married. No, no spoilers there. <laughs> uh, we moved to Hong Kong in 2018, um, and our roles were, were meant to be regional at the time, both of us. Um, but you know, very quickly, I think we sensed that things were changing in Hong Kong. Right? Um, that was the year that um the West Calvin railway station um was was completed and opened. The bridge connecting Hong Kong um to Zhuhai and Rama um was also opened. It, it, you know there was a sense of of encouragement already already sort of happening and, and slow drumbeat of that. Um, and then obviously the events of 2019 happened. Um, and when they did, you know, I think our I'll, our I'll focus, um me uh with the Washington Post meant to be sort of regional, meant to look at the region. That changed completely, right? With with the, such a big news event in Hong Kong, um, our focus totally, totally shifted um, to covering the protests day in and day out, um, you know, spending the Sundays on, on the streets and then trying to make sense of everything that happened in the weekdays. And it sort of followed that rhythm until COVID hit um, and things went quiet. And then within a few months, the national security law was passed. Um, so, you know, speaking for the both of us here, but just in in a quick summary, I think, you know, there was there was a sense that things were really unfinished, and um, we felt that, you know, with a with a bit of um, uh, more research and 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 sort of going back in, into history, we can sort of contextualize what we saw in twenty nineteen, um, and you know, kind of bring bring a certain amount of,
1: of, of context and and, and have to it by by
3: you know pursuing a it.
1: Yes, um, and for myself, uh, I was I in twenty eighteen, uh, you know, just started working uh, for the Atlantic. Uh, I was freelancing a little bit before then. I wasn't really writing so much uh, about Hong Kong in the beginning. I was, I was living there, but I was kind of doing regional stuff, much like Um, uh, I think that the first, you know, article I wrote for the Atlantic. On Hong Kong was about the bridge opening, uh, and and going over there observing, uh, you know that that process and it was kind of a big deal at the time. Um, yeah, and then uh, you know much like uh, Shivani, I was I was you know that regional stuff kind of came to a halt, and I focused mostly primarily on Hong Kong for the next few years. You know, first the. The um, the protests and what followed and then, of course, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, made its way, way to Hong Kong pretty quickly, more so probably before it, obviously before it hit, the you know, the US and Europe. So that kind of took over our lives after that and then they kind of melded together in, in a lot of ways.
2: I found the research in your book, like, super interesting because it was so rich and so detailed and you could really tell that you were on the ground and, you know, it was so much of it was based um, on your day-to-day experiences and your reporting. Can you tell me a little bit about how you did the research and how that informed the book?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, we can break it into a few different kind of like categories. I think, mean, you know, the on-the-ground stuff was just, uh, you know, Wishwani and I mostly together, you know, going out to the protest pretty much, uh, you know, every weekend, the big kind of marches that tend to happen on Saturdays and particularly Sundays. The smaller marches during the week, you know, I think we really made an effort to try to be at as many as possible, um, to kind of hang out uh, at them as long as possible until we needed to kind of rush back to file things, to try to just absorb as much as what was going on. You know, we did we shot a lot of, you know, videos for our own reporting, not really for broadcast, interviewed as many people as, as possible. So I think, um, you know, the weekend was kind of this flurry of going out and, and reporting, yeah. The week was kind of smaller protests and then talking to kind of a lot of academics and lawmakers, you know, both you know, in Hong Kong and the U.S., trying to kind of sort out what was going on. Uh, so it kind of had a bit of a rhythm to it, actually, after a while, even though it seemed kind of like maybe, especially towards the end, to be chaotic. Uh, to us, I think it, it felt kind of, uh, it felt like there was a bit of a rhythm going there for for a while. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that, that's where a lot of the on-the-reporting grounds from us came from. I think, luckily, also, you know, the situation of Hong Kong, um, you know, because of the, the, the universities there and the academics there, a, a lot of this stuff, 2019 was kind of being studied by a lot of people from an academic angle kind of in, in real time. So that was really helpful, like the polling, uh, the opinion polls, that kind of stuff that was coming out like almost the days after this stuff happened was we really got to have a real time read on, on what was happening and, and that kind of stuff had taken place during other protest movements as well in 2014 and 2003 so there really wasn't a lot of stuff to go look back on um you know as well um there was you know academic resources of course like news clippings. so there was a, a whole lot of stuff too much stuff um it didn't help it did not make it in we kept buying books and and going further into archives but uh yeah i mean that was really fun and i think a really interesting part of, of reporting as well
3: and i think just to add to that i mean the the some of the key things we really wanted to report out and and made sure that we used the space, right, that happened between the events and when we started writing the book um, to do was uh, three things. One was the lead up to the extradition bill itself. Um, I think we reported that in quite a bit of granularity because um, a lot of people were actually, including from the probation camp, willing to talk about what happened and, and what went wrong. I mean, they were willing to admit that There were so many offerings that could have been taken all the way up to June of of 2019, right? Um, And I think, you know, we tried to document that sort of step by step, um, including from interviews with people inside the establishment. And then once the protests happened, um, a few key events were quite defining, right? Uh, The July 1st uh, break-in of the Legislative Council, um, Yuen Long um, and what happened there on July 21st. Um, I think those we considered sort of Sort of major kind of touchstones um, that really changed the the, the sort of um, kind of rhythm of of, of the protest and also really showed that people were much more open to kind of direct action and 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 action that people would have considered violent right back in twenty fourteen or back in two thousand and three and so you know going back and, and understanding that was 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 quite important um, for us as well.
2: That's really interesting. So. I want to ask you, is there anything that surprised you when you were reporting on the protests, like in terms of the way the movement changed or, as you said, just now in change when um, there was sort of violence that in, say, 2003 would not have been tolerated or sort of accepted by the wider community? What surprised you in reporting?
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that was so interesting because our book goes back to 1989, right, and actually yeah. it looks at the start of the birth of the modern pro democracy, you know, movement and sort of track this evolution through 2003, 2014, uh, and then 2019 using these these key characters, right? I mean, one of the things that continues to surprise me today, and and was something that came up also in my in my reporting at the time, was really this growing sort of acceptance of more radical action, right? In in most countries in the world, when you see people start throwing Molotov cocktails and, and so on. That's when you see a sort of dipping of sort of popular support, which kind of never happened, right, in, in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, we we try to use our main characters in the book to understand why young people who were even sort of apathetic um, back in, you know, 2014 or sort of on the fringes of all this stuff would then themselves, you know, um, finding their way towards more radical and, and, and more violent actions, right? And and sort of willing to do, you know, things that they could have never anticipated doing um even a year a year before that. Right. And I think I think that sort of continues to surprise me. Um and it was something we, we we sort of tried to spend a lot of time understanding, right? Including by looking at other movements throughout history um and 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 how radicalization
1: happens. Yeah. I mean I, I think that was certainly something they were interested. I mean, I think I think you know, again, looking at it kind of anecdotally, when people we talked to and told the story through, it, also the research showed that people were really, you know, maybe not. Uh, I guess uh, they understood why people were taking those actions, right? Uh, even if they didn't uh, maybe agree with them. And I think that's an interesting thing to to kind of think about and differentiate from saying that they were, you know, that they were behind it. I mean, maybe they were behind it, believing in it, but they understood why other people would would have gone that direction, right? Um, so I think that I think that was um, for us kind of interesting one to see. I think uh, you know I think also uh, if we're looking at not maybe so much the movement but the government's kind of reaction to it, I think it was also kind of interesting to see how this grew from what was really kind of I think a local governance kind of problem into a very big problem for Beijing and how that changed the way people talked about it or reacted to it. Uh, and uh you know especially from from official in the government and, and lawmakers at that time um so yeah i think those were those were kind of things that, that that jumped out to us uh that that were really you know interesting aside from kind of just the, the characters i think uh, i should not say characters just the subjects you kind of meet along the way i think every princess there was you know people who told you a story or who you saw or had a funny sign or things like that there was just kind of teeny little things you know that that, that happened along the way um, you know, that that also kind of make every part of reporting on a, on a big movement like this fascinating, you know, undertaking.
2: So maybe it's a good time to talk about some of your main characters in the book and some of the other characters that you met in the protest. I, this is one of definitely my favourite parts of the book because, you know, I've read loads about the protests and, you know, I was in Hong Kong at the time. But this, like, exploring the protest through the eyes of these protagonists that you had really... It really made it more real for me, but also I was able to understand different aspects and different sides to what was going on that I just, I could never have experienced. So perhaps you can tell me about some of these characters in your book and some of the others that you met as well.
1: Sure. Well, so, uh, I'll do two with you, I guess. I'll, I'll take the, the first ones. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so the first person I think that uh, is Reverend Shun, which you named still was, or is Rattler, um, you know, a uh, guy who has been involved in the pro democracy movement really from its start. You know, he has a he has a, he's, he's in his eighties now and has kind of a history that mirrors a lot of the people you know in Hong Kong. He was uh, born in Hong Kong, moved to the mainland. You know, was there for parts of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Moved back to, um, to 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 Hong Kong uh, and is essentially an economic migrant. Uh, saw the city change and develop and through his dealings with the church is, is kind of how he got involved in the democracy in the movement and then it were kind of becoming you know a massive part of his life so with, with him we wanted to use him to talk a little bit about uh the history and the arc of all this stuff uh, and i think it was also you know he's one of those people that was just at so many key moments i think johnny and i every time we interviewed him which is many many times he would kind of add like, "Oh, I knew this person, or I was there when this happened," and then it would just start like another conversation about something, right? Even when you look at old photos uh, of important moments in, in Hong Kong, if you just look behind, like the Martin Lees and the Jimmy lies and they, he's often there, right? Like kind of right there in, in all the mix. Um, so you know, we wanted to use him to kind of tell this this history bit uh, of the development of Hong Kong, Hong Kong's identity, you know, as it was kind of being separated from from uh, from the mainland in a way. Um, and then the other person who i guess i'll talk about is uh bin lao who's from a very different type generation of activists you know he was uh, an anonymous person um during the movement uh right up until the kind of until the end and he was living in london though he's from Hong kong and he was using the internet um to write these manifestos and kind of uh propel the movement uh forward through kind of message boards and i think you know that's a very uh different you know experience with 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 the movement with the protest movement, um, you know specifically, I think we wanted to, to talk to him a little bit because he spoke a lot or kind of detailed, you know, what can be done online uh, in a leaderless movement, like, and, but also, you know, what can be published, but also, you know, harder limitations of that, um, you know, how far it that go. Um, so yeah, I think those are two people from like very different generations. So I think and they both kind of told different aspects of, of of story. And I'll let Shmanti tap a little too. So I don't want
3: to be able to um Yeah, so um, one of the things we really wanted to do while giving, you know, having Reverend Chu sort of be the, the anchor of the book, right, because his life obviously spans the longest time, was was to center the book around young people, right, because young people were really sort of at the front and center of 2019 and sort of the front and center of of this sort of great disappointment, right, in, in Hong Kong. And I think Tommy, Barras us, um, sort of fits fits that in, in, in a big way, you know, he... Somebody who grew up in in public housing, um, you know, really felt very disillusioned uh, with the idea that Hong Kong could be a place where he saw himself buy a car or own a home or, or get married. Right. Like the Hong Kong sort of dream um, as it sold is something that never really applied to him. Um, but he uh, was a visual arts student. You know, that was the way he, he expressed himself. And when, he, when the extradition bill was was. Um, sort of discussed, right? I think he saw it as an affront to sort of the kind of liberal sort of values he 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 wanted to see in Hong Kong. So he gets into the movement that way and um, steadily becomes more and more kind of radicalized. Um, you know, our book is called Among the Braves. I think Tommy is probably the only one who fits that um, the 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 word the Braves, right? Which is in Hong Kong. You know, uh, what they refer to as a more frontline, the most frontline. Protesters um, would go out every day and sort of fight the police and extinguish tear gas and so on. Uh, so we track his journey from sort of being a kind of apathetic class clown to um, becoming a quote-unquote brave and then essentially flees to mm-hmm. Taiwan uh, where he um, spends six months in, in detention um, before being resettled in, in the U.S. Um, and our last um, sort of protagonist uh, character is... Gwyneth Ho. um she was a journalist at the time that the protester actually was studying in in Denmark um and then comes back for a summer um where essentially her the trajectory of her whole life changes um because of what happens to her in Yunlong on July the 21st uh and she ends up you know trying to to kind of harness you know what what had had sort of happened to her to uh become a political activist, really, and is one of the uh, 47 uh, charged in the big national security law case and has been jailed uh, since the start of 2021. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I want to pick up on something you've just sort of referenced in relation to Hong Kong identity and the sort of separation from the mainland and especially sort of considering it from the perspective of Hong Kong's youth. You know, I want to ask you sort of in 2019, do you think it sort of shaped what it was to be a Hong Konger in terms of a sort of, I don't know if you can say national identity, but sort of a, you know, very specific char- sort of national character?
3: Yeah, I think that was like slowly building, right? I mean, that's, mm. you know, that that's something that we we saw. From in in 89, the political consciousness mm. was built alongside that consciousness that was developing in Beijing, right? It went hand in hand. I mean, I think people saw themselves for the first time as Chinese and and felt a lot of solidarity with what that, that meant, right? It meant sort of, you know, pushing for your rights. It meant sort of protest, right? And then when that was crushed, that generation felt, you know, very strongly about continuing that. Uh, legacy right of of what was started in in Beijing in 1989. and so um, much of the early pro-democracy movement focused so much right on this dream of democratization in China. but by the time we reach 2019, right that that that's sort of over right with that new generation of young people. I mean, they don't really see themselves being concerned with that in the least and for them that the sort of defining thing was 2014. Uh, for Tommy in particular, it was it was localism and the and the rise of Edward Lung and the rise of this idea of what it meant to be a Hong Konger in in those terms. Um, and I think that drove to them uh so much of you know why they participated in in 2019. Right, it was this feeling of like if we're not on the streets, if we're not fighting, if we're not doing something. Then like we're not Hong Kongers, right? Where and I think you know that that was something that that permeated throughout our conversations. It wasn't like. Nobody said, like, we really wanted to do this. They said, we felt we had to. It was always that that word, right? I, I felt I had to. I had no choice. I had to. Um, and I think that, that ties in so strongly with that sense of identity and that sense of how they saw themselves and how they saw their role in kind of defending the city at, at the time that this this was happening, right? And you also saw it manifested in things like Glory to Hong Kong. Um, you know, I'm, I'm borrowing from somebody else who said this, right? But if they said, you know, if 2014 was... Um, The birth of a political consciousness in Hong Kong, you know, 2019 was the birth of a Hong Kong nation, right? That that national identity, um, even without the context of of a nation. And that's not to mean independence, but, you know, identity without without that
0: state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Yeah, and I think you can see now uh, it's becoming more clear. You know, when the national security law came, I didn't jump ahead too far much here, but with the national security law came and now with Article Twenty Three, the domestic national security law that we just got kind of the outline of earlier today, you're seeing that this wasn't, you know, these laws were just obviously about stopping, you know, the protest or stopping violence, as they once said. Uh, you can you, you can see much more clearly now that it was about this, this. There is part of it about breaking this identity, about kind of pushing down this identity or erasing it. Uh, and in the document today released by the government on Article 23, they quote, uh, you know, the phrase nation building. As something that they that they saw happening in 2019, it's now unacceptable, right? And they list that along with, you know, terrorism and separatism and independence is this phrase nation building, right? So that I think shows you how seriously perturbed the government has become by the fact that this Hong Kong this, this Hong Kong identity took root uh so strongly and they people didn't identify as Chinese, which I think obviously the government thought would happen post-1997, right? That this that there would be this great, you know, Chinese identity didn't take over within an Kong. And oh
2: sorry, you um and so my next question then is, you know, the second part of the book is titled Burn with Us. And this one of the sort of catchphrases of the protest movement. If you burn oh sorry, if we burn, you burn with us. So how did this sort of inform national identity, you know, um, or this specific Hong Konger identity? You just said that when you spoke to people, they had this sense that they had to fight. they had to go out on the streets. Um, so you know, what did this mean if if we burn, you burn with us?
3: Yeah, I think it was this idea that like if this really fatalistic thing would have happened, right? I mean, if you're powerless in any other way, right? the government is doing all the stuff, the police is doing all the stuff, you're standing up to China, which is this, like unmovable entity then the only thing that's within your power to do is sort of take things down with you as they're sort of trying to kind of demolish what you care about, right? Which is the the sort of identity and the freedoms and the liberties and so on and so forth. And so it is a sense that like, you know, all the things that China wants from Hong Kong, right? Using it as a financial center, using it as a place where capital flows can happen, you know, helping it sort of bolster the Chinese economy, Um, the the relationship, right, between the the U.S. and and China that for so long, right, happened through Hong Kong, Um, that should be targeted as well. And, you know, this wasn't just sort of a theoretical thing. I mean, it really manifested itself with um, so much of the protest movement, whether it was in Hong Kong or outside of Hong Kong, focused on sanctions. And passing sanctions and, and trying to get Hong Kong to sort of be a sort of, quote unquote, pariah, right? In in the way that like, you know, Carrie Lam is now sanctioned and, and, and John Lee is sanctioned, right? That was something that they directly were, were sort of hoping for um, as a result of that, right? And that Hong Kong should no longer be considered this, you know, glamorous uh, international financial center. Um, it should be, it, you know, it should be punished Um, because it, it, was, it was punishing its own people.
2: And sort of at the time, almost foreshadowing um, what was to come in 2019, you know, you just mentioned Carrie um, Lam. So she was the chief executive in 2019 during the protests. She was chosen to become chief executive in 2017. Um, and this is one of the chapters in your book. You just describe Paris, as the leader who killed her city. So when she was made chief executive, she said, my priority will be to heal the divide and to ease the frustration and to unite our society to move forward, to uphold the values of inclusiveness, freedoms of the press and of speech, respect from human rights and systems which have taken generations to establish, such as the independent judiciary, rule of law and clean government. Yet that same night when, um, when she was sort of sworn in as chief executive, Xi Jinping, who was also there, warned that any attempt to endanger China's sovereignty and security – challenges the power of the central government or uses Hong Kong to carry out infiltration and sabotage against the mainland is an act that crosses the red line. So perhaps can you tell me, expand upon perhaps a little bit, these sort of seeming competing tensions um, in the sort of normative framework of governance leading up to 2019 and then after?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that those kind of two quotes sort of in in a in a way, you uh, know, describe the difficulties and tensions that are inherent in being a chief executive of Hong Kong. Right, you have kind of two distinct uh, constituencies that you're working for here. You have the people of Hong Kong, who are uh, we know the district council elections and polling uh, predominantly, you know, pro uh, democracy leaning. There's British style court system that they're used to. Uh, there's the openness of governance uh, that people have grown accustomed to of uh, getting internationalness that doesn't exist, uh, you know, on, on the mainland, right? Uh, and the question I think is always uh, for, the, for the leaders of, of Hong Kong is kind of which, uh, or or it's it's obvious in which party they're going to favor, which is Beijing, because that's who put them in the position. But I guess the question is then to what degree kind of will you uh, favor Beijing and how will you spread that needle or walk that, that line? Um, and I think Tony Lamb was uniquely bad at that job. Although it should be said that everyone that's come before Land has pretty much also sort of failed at this position, right? Tang Chih-wa was a step down, citing health concerns, though we know that he stayed around in the public eye for many, many years after following the 2003 protests. Uh, Donald Chung went to jail for corruption. Uh, and CY Long was you know, uh, yanked out of uh, running for for a second term abruptly roughly leading the way for, for Carrie Lam, right? So none of these people have been particularly good at the, at the job. Uh, and she was uniquely bad of the lot, right? I think, in and that is due a lot to the position, but also her personality, uh, which we know through a lot of reporting, uh, you know, she's very stubborn and hard-headed. Uh, you know, I think she alienated uh, tons of people, you know, in, in Hong Kong. A common refrain that I heard even from Pro-Beijing, Officials, when I spoke about Carrie Lamb was that you can count on your hand the number of friends she has. Uh, you know, somewhere between three and five people that actually enjoy being around her. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I think you know, in, in in the beginning of her term, I think there's also this international constituency in Hong Kong of the chambers of commerce and the businessmen who are you do have an outsized kind of sway. Uh, I think in the, in the city's governance. Uh, and they liked her, right? She was very with numbers. She was very kind of, she could answer their questions very well. She was kind of quick witted in conversations with them. If you look back when she was doing these international kind of events and things like that. Um, so I think they were lulled a little bit into, into believing that she could kind of write this ship and, and kind of focus on the economy, get things going again. Uh, and then really when the when the issues started piling up for her, and particularly uh, you know, the, the protest movement started, she just cut piling ahead and missed all of these, uh, you know, off-ramps and missed all these opportunities to confuse the, the situation. Uh, and so uh, to go back to your quote, uh, you know, that you, that you started with, uh, you know, that's that's kind of what we heard, what she said, and it's what kind of we hear now about what happened in Hong Kong in 2019, right? That it became this base of subversion and, uh, you know, it was a color revolution uh, is a phrase that we hear a lot now. And you don't remember hear that or look at the government statements, so you always look back to see kind of why these things started, which they never give, you know, in the government statements now, these just these protests just materialize out of thin air, right? There was no impetus towards it. And there was. There was this law and there was Carrie Lamb and there was John Lee pushing it uh forward. And they're the ones who caused this thing. Uh, so I think that's kind of a good thing for for listeners, for anybody who's looking at Hong Kong to remember that they're the ones responsible.
2: So then why do you think Beijing saw Hong Kong as such a threat to sort of political stability? Yeah, I think
3: that was one of the things we really um, found quite regulatory when we were reporting this mm-hmm. book, right? So this starts off as a local issue, pushed by Carrie Lam, mm-hmm. it's pushed by John Lee, Beijing isn't really too concerned one way or another. But then as it gains steam and gains momentum, right, and this again, remember, was the Trump era... You know the U.S. really piggybacks on it in a big way, and there is this sort of like mutual kind of appeal on both sides, right? Obviously, the Hong Kong, um, you know, democracy movement very, very, and historically has been very um close to Washington and London and other governments, right? And and that that is a relationship that goes back, you know, even from the Martin Lee era, um, and something that has always grated on both the Hong Kong government and and Beijing. Um, but then you also see um, people like, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo and you know um, Josh Hawley and 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 others from kind of the Republican Party picking up Hong Kong as as this big like cause or, or, or big big kind of uh, part of, of sort of their, their their politicking within within the U.S. as well. Mm-hmm. And I think those confluence of events. Especially when um, things started getting more violent on the streets, when these American like senators and stuff started appearing, I think they really couldn't not believe that this was a U.S. plot or, or subversion. Even if the Hong Kong government didn't believe it herself, right? I mean, we had we had in in the book a quote from Carrie Lam, sort of early on, saying, "Of course, I know this is not foreign interference." Right? She knew the Hong Kong government knew the mess they had they had sort of created. But once that sort of confluence happened, right, where you saw American flags on the street, you saw American lawmakers come in the Trump era where so much else was focused on kind of, you know, uh, China and, and and sort of weakening Beijing, right? They they just started seeing it only from that lens. And I, I, I do think Beijing is, you know, from our reporting, from speaking to people within the Hong Kong government, especially, they really believed it after
1: a seven. Mm-hmm. They really, truly, truly believed it. Yeah. And I think another thing, uh, you know, it's like kind of the internationalness and the way to kind of draw, you know, attention to the cause uh, was going out and lobbying. That was a bit different from from 2014. Right. Uh, When Joshua was he was certainly an international figure, but he was on the streets there. Right. Uh, You know, this time around the Hong Kong Hong Kongers, I guess, or the movement had its own sort of very fairly sophisticated kind of lobbying operation where they were going out. Uh, talking in front of Congress, they were buying ads in newspapers, things like that. I think that was a big part of it. This internationalizing of 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 Hong Kong with, was something that that infuriated uh, the powers to be. And also uh, another point that we kind of see that keeps getting brought up again and again and again. Now it was calling for sanctions that the protesters and and individuals like Jimmy Lai and other people advocating for sanctions. That certainly now seems like, given what we know about. The national security law trials and statements from the government over the past couple of years seems like something they would absolutely would not tolerate. Um, and so I think there's differences um compared to 2014. I think a lot of people focus on well it was violent. There was, you know, some vandalism and there's some violence. I don't I think that was different, certainly, and that was, you know, visually alarming and then there was a there was escalatory actions towards the police. That's I think sometimes that kind of overshadows this other stuff that we know now. Uh, Beijing was very, very, very concentrated on and Beijing and, and, you know, and the Hong Kong government were very focused on and, and kind of very mad and and, and maybe perhaps would worry about what against comes to the sanctions.
2: So then do you think there was sort of any truth that behind sort of Beijing's populist narrative that there was foreign influence at play? You know, one of the um, offences in the national security law is collusion with a foreign country or, an ex- or external elements to endanger national security. You know, should Beijing have been worried or do you think, you know, are the rest of the world sort of going to let Hong Kong not necessarily burn but just sort of play out as, you know, on yeah.
1: So, I mean, I think, I think now, again, it's it's interesting when mm. we have these discussions, we talk to people like you and other people to, to kind of mm. look at, at what the government was saying at the time versus what they're saying now, right? Mm. Uh, you know, we know that that narrative about foreign interference, is not crystallized around August 2019, right? Before that, of what was coming from the government and from Beijing was mm. that this was an economic issue, right? That people were upset that they couldn't afford apartments, that they had been overtaken by people in Shenzhen they were living in this great city looking down on people, uh, you know, from Hong Kong who had no money who worked kind out of stopped financially, financially, right? Um, That changed when they started kind of attacking the U.S. government specifically in the incident that we kind of talk about in the book in some detail. And then we mm-hmm. see the kind of big shift with Black Hand and Foreign Forces uh, you know, narrative in a big way. And it was always floating around, I think, but it, that's where it really kind of, kind of crystallized. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I think at the time if you would talk to people and Carrie Lam herself, as we reported in the book as well, said that she didn't believe this, right? And I think Uh, That's We were talking about people kind of like, you know, foreign people, you know, governments giving money to protesters, things like that was was kind of what people were, these conspiracy theories that were floating around. Now, I think if you ask people, uh, you know, in in government or positions of power about the foreign influence thing, we'll say, well, yeah, because people, you know, because Mike Pompeo sent a tweet or because some protesters went to Taiwan and met with political parties there. The goalposts have shipped tremendously here and and to, to, to kind of explain what they mean by, you know, quote-unquote foreign uh, you know interference or foreign meddling, right? Now, if, you know, the, the U.S. or the U.K. says, oh, you know, they should repeal the national security law, or they're, you know, they fire off a million responses saying they're interfering in Kong's affairs, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the goal goes to change massively, but didn't just kind of like flat out answer your question in terms of this foreign interference? No. Uh, you know, if this was not, uh, you know, funded by the or funded by the C.I.A., or, you know, NDI wasn't there shoveling money in the protesters' pockets. Of course not. And I think they stick with that narrative because it robs the people of Hong Kong of the uh, you know, autonomy over their own actions, um, you know, and and, and the beliefs that they they were going out there on their own.
3: If, if I could just add like one quick point to that. I mean, I do think that I mean, all of that is 100 percent true, but I think that there was a sad sad thing that now we sort of see in retrospect, which was that you know, I think a lot of Western governments used Hong Kong, right? Yeah. They didn't yeah. interfere per se, but they but they used Hong Kong. I mean, they used Hong Kong as a domestic issue. They used Hong Kong to posture. They used Hong Kong to strengthen their anti-China, you know, credentials or, or whatever. And then when push came to shove, they really did very little, right? Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the UK has probably done the most by offering the BNO pathway. But even then, I think they feel like, now that that pathway exists, they can kind of wash their hands, right? Um, and that's that. That's it. It's sort of done. And you know, by by the end of when we were finishing up the book, we saw this kind of like flurry of re-engagement, right? We saw this big, you know, bankers conference happen, um, and 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 not much pushback against that from from Washington. You know, we saw um, the UK, right, the the, the British uh, consul general saying that there should be no more megaphone diplomacy and there shouldn't be any sort of chiding of, of, of Hong Kong publicly, and we should be working to re-engage, um, I think that's, that's that's you know, a, a, a sad reality, right? I mean, that's that's not the same, obviously, as foreign interference. But I think, you know, um, there were many, many countries, many politicians, many people who kind of manipulated the Hong Kong issue for their own benefit, and, and yeah. it didn't follow through.
2: So then why do you think Hong Kong is significant? Why should, you know, Washington and London continue to care? Yeah, because I mean,
3: I think Hong Kong truly demonstrates the fragility of institutions, right? And democratic institutions that we that we, you know, know and trust and, and and rely on. And I think that's a message that is that is global. I mean, one thing and I was looking back at a passage from our book today actually, because of the Article twenty three stuff that's happening. I mean, I think one thing that people would have never thought would be so compromised in Hong Kong is the legal system, right? Mm-hmm. Common law you know, British, Canadian judges sitting on the bench, right? I mean, people had so much faith in the Hong Kong legal system. And people had so much faith that even when it became used sort of against political um sort of people, right? Like Jimmy Lai or the 47 or whatever, everything would be separated, right? So you could still go ahead and do your like MA or arbitration or whatever else you want within the Hong Kong courts. I mean, I, I don't really think even the most strident of Hong Kong defenders believe that today. And I think the, the the sort of pace at which that has happened has been has been really, really shocking, right? And I think, you know, that's that's sort of why people should care, right? I mean, Hong Kong was always conceptualized as being this sort of ideal for China, right? In in, in many ways. That, you know, even even if China would never be fully really democratic or open, maybe it would Become a bit more like Hong Kong, right? Where there was a certain amount of transparency in doing business, where there was predictability in, in terms of the rule of law, where there were these institutions that you could rely on and trust. I mean, all of that's gone down.
1: Yeah. And, and I think also, you know, something that we learned and we're looking kind of at, you know, takeaways and, and things that can maybe be applied, looked at in other places is it's kind of a great question of, you know, why do people go along with these things, right? Uh, you know, why do people who, who spoke out at one point stop speaking out? Why do people who were adequately against one thing suddenly become for it, uh, you know, mean throw along with these kind of obviously illegal, you know, anti-democratic uh, things that are taking place? Uh, you know, there's a lot of answers to those questions. There's a lot of answers, you know, in all call, it varies, I think, probably person to person or group Um, But I think that's also an interesting thing to think about and kind of interrogate, um, you know, as to why, you know, politicians and lawmakers or even kind of activists or something, what, what makes them? How to change and become co-opted uh, when they see these systems that, that go against kind of their values taking hold in, in places.
2: So then, I guess my next question is sort of bring it back to the book a little bit. One of the chapters is titled "Exiled or Jail," and then thinking about some of the Hong Kong political dissidents. Some of them, uh, some of them are the sort of main characters in your book, but then of course there's many more, and many of them have ended up either in exile, feeling that they must flee or directly fleeing sort of um, arrests and charges against them or they are in prison. So then what is the next step for Hong Kongers in this situation, do you think?
3: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's like the hardest question of all to Mm -hmm. answer, right? Um, Some people like Gwyneth have tried to use their position in jail and prison to kind of expose the absurdity of it all, right? I mean, she's Mm -hmm. one of the few pleading not guilty um, even though that's been at a huge personal cost chao Tong obviously is another one um and they I think they have sort of become that sort of you know like like many before them in China right using their position as as jailed activists and, and and distance to expose something or say something quite profound about the system and and have sort of found sort of power in 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 doing that and that's why it was I think so important for us to to, to kind of feature kind of, a focus on how in this in this book um for the people who are in exile I think so much is about preserving that identity, that sense of, you know, nationhood and community, right, that was birthed on the streets of Hong Kong in in 2019. So you see all these initiatives to keep the Cantonese language alive. For example, a lot of universities are starting to do Cantonese programs that have never done it before. You see Hong Kong film festivals, cultural things. Um, There was obviously a very big one in in, in Vancouver, um, quite recently, with 1000s of people attending. So you know, I think I think that's sort of the more like soft side of things. I and mean, then obviously, people have also um, the diaspora have also been very active politically, right? You know, um, meeting with Westminster and Washington and and so on and so forth. And 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 push that in some places around the world. You know, the Hong Kong constituent is now big enough that they're actually a voting voting bloc, right? In in parts of the UK, that's definitely true. In parts of Canada, that's long been true. But now you have a a sort of new kind of generation of, of migrants in right and I think you know there are more people trying to get involved in, in local politics and and so on so there are you know avenues for, for optimism but I think especially today with article 23 sort of being announced and, and sort of being more sweeping again than I think people maybe initially predicted um I just think the space in Hong Kong is uh, yeah slim to none right
2: so then sort of Um, in your book, you divide the three sections into, um, one country, if you burn, um, sorry, if we burn, you burn with us. And then the third part, oh, sorry, I've mixed it up. So it's, uh, two systems, one country. So, you know, the basic law, which is Hong Kong's mini constitution, um, guarantees it's, uh, one country with two systems, right? Um, however, the final part of your book is titled one country. So can you comment on whether or not, to what extent has Hong Kong become one country with China? Are there any sort of distinguishing features to maintain this identity?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one thing that we, we hear, I guess that people kind of like to like throw back and you were saying is, you know, it's, well, it's still freer than, you know, the cities on the mainland. Uh, and yeah, that's true. But that shouldn't be the bar that we measure Hong Kong against, right? We, uh, you know, Hong Kong was different uh, and still is in a lot of ways different. Uh, I could see why it's attractive to people from the, from the mainland to, you know, maybe as we see a lot of immigration to Hong Kong now from the mainland, why they might want to move there? Because it is in a lot of ways more open and free than the mainland, but it is undoubtedly a diminished place in every one of those categories, you know, in terms of press freedom, in terms of freedom of speech, a of civil liberties, all of that stuff has been massively, massively eroded. Right. So again, I think that's kind of a very false metric and bad bar that people like to kind of throw out and, and measure it against. Um, uh, and in terms of, uh, of you know, the, the the you know one country two systems, I think it's we would say I think that that is it, that it's a finished system, right? Uh, you know, that it was a grand experiment in 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 governance. I think the people of Taiwan would agree that it's finished. Even the KMT doesn't want one country two systems now for 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 Taiwan. It's kind of a, a taboo to even mention it um, in post twenty nineteen politics there. Um, you know i think and then in the eyes of beijing it is still working um you know they still reference it as something that, that that's evolving and they, they kind of working with with it's been being adjusted is kind of the way that they talk about it now or perfected um so i think it's important to keep that in mind that they still certainly do think that it's working in some capacity but i think for anybody else you know neutral or outside observers to that the question is no it's not And that's
3: yeah and i i just had this thought actually but you know when when we were doing A lot of the research in our book it it, it sort of became clear that even when beijing conceptualized you know one country two systems they were always very anxious about identity like they were very happy for it to be two systems if the two systems were like you know the card c and maybe even the legal system or like the banking system blah blah blah. but if the two systems meant like two identities then that was something they were always uncomfortable with right even if you go back to the text from 2003 after um you know article 23 was shelved again very ironic saying this today there was so much anxiety of that hong kong identity sort of developing right um so as long as they felt that the 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 two systems meant two kind of different ways of seeing yourself or believing yourself i mean they would have never been comfortable with it right and so that's why now you see this sort of integration of hong kong within that Greater Bay area kind of narrative where you know even if before it might have just been sort of an economic sort of you know, mega sort of um, city, right? That they were essentially trying to build. Um, now, there is that, that that subsuming of the Hong Kong identity within that sort of broader sort of Southern China or like Guangdong sort of consciousness, right? Or at least that's what they're, they're trying to push. And I think that's that's a sort of important distinction, right? They They're happy with the two systems if the two systems kind of don't get in the way with the one country, right? Um, essentially.
2: So then talking more about um, the new Article 23 legislation, can you comment on, you know, can you predict what's going to happen? Will rights and freedoms and liberties be even further eroded in Hong Kong? Will it become more of one country even?
1: Yeah, because I think, you know, what we saw today, the text of what is out there, you know, when this was proposed in 2003, Hong Kong and uh, was a different place, but also importantly to remember, China was a very different place. Uh, and so the the Article 23 was proposed in 2003 you know I think seemed drastic at the time and people said it went even further than did some parts of, of what was was uh, happening in the mainland. You know look how much China has changed and how much they've become just obsessed with national security with threats internal and external this kind of omnipresent paranoia uh, of the Xi rule uh, and, then, and, then, and then you're using that as the basis to write Article 23 now, obviously it's gonna be far more sweeping, far more reaching uh, than, than what was seen 20 years ago, right? So that's exactly what we saw today. An expanded definition of, of state security or sorry, state secrets that, that this massive section on espionage that I think business uh, is certainly gonna be concerned about, that journalists are undoubtedly gonna be concerned about, because part of it talks about, you know expanding the definition of a public servant right so someone who would give you maybe an interview or information or a document you know puts them at, at greater risk now even talking to researchers or journalists or business due diligence types who we've seen detained uh you know on the mainland as of recent um so yeah i mean you think the, the arrival of, of what it looks like today uh you know it, it's pretty bleak and, and not only is it is it bleak and draconian the space to debate or change it is extremely limited. There is no opposition in the legislative council. There's no opposition in the district council. There's no space for protest. You know, a question asked today, I think rightfully so, by a journalist, was that is opposing Article 23 against the national security law, right? Uh, So, I mean, think about, you know, just the mind principle you have to put yourself in to think about that stuff, you know, in in Hong Kong now.
3: I think, I think it would be interesting to see like once they pass this, whether immediately they'll start arresting people under the new law, just kind of like they did with the NSL, right? Just to set up the framework of what it looks like um, with some like show arrests and, and, and sort of show trials, right? Which I think, you know, I sort of don't pull past them.
2: And do you think then that it will be effective in sort of erosing this national consciousness of what it is to be a Hong Konger or will it make hong kong is more resilient and sort of go underground do you think i think the hong konger
3: identity now is sort of easier mm. to kind of express outside of hong kong than inside of hong kong right when we were in taiwan recently for, for the election you know we we went into essentially what were yellow cafes in hong kong that were allowed to sort of thrive and function um you know it's strong a way right I, I think like that expression of these an outward expression of the, the the sort of Hong Kong identity and the way you know it was expressed in 2019, yeah. it's just extremely difficult to do now, right? I mean, we 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 have friends um, who say that it's so much easier to just kind of like put your head down and go into survival mode if you're still in Hong Kong because to do anything else is sort of too painful, um, right? And and I think that's that's sort of the reality of of that dichotomy between exile or, or staying, right? I mean, not not jail, which is kind of a different category, yeah. but if you're sort of an average person and you're sort of Choosing to stay, um, or you don't have a choice. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's really difficult to confront every day how diminished the city that you live in is, right? And so I think for a lot of people, they they just have to kind of go into like blinker mode and and sort of get get through it. But you know, um, yeah,
1: it's seems there's, there's also still a tremendous amount of you know fear as well. We we've done a lot of you know different different book events and discussions and things like that. Um, You know, in the couple months the book has come out, you know, we did one the other day uh, with SOAS in in the UK. And every question, every participant uh, who asked a question has to be, you know, anonymous and not tell us, you know, their name. Um, You know, we've been to events at Georgetown Law School in the U.S. where people came up to us afterwards, talked to us, you know, from Hong Kong who didn't want to, again, tell us their surname or, or, or didn't want to be photographed at the event because they had family back, you know, in Hong Kong. So there's a huge amount of fear, I think. Um, I think sometimes people have a hard time understanding that because it's not, you know, like active war zone or we see, you know, conflicts obviously going on that are much more bloody and, and horrific. Uh, and, and so sometimes people, I think, kind of have a hard time swearing now. But I think that that, that fear, uh, you know, is very much still, still out there. It, it's still very real for a lot of people.
2: And so then to sort of bring it to a close, do you have any key takeaways from your book and the Hong Kong um, situation?
3: um yeah i mean i think for me one of the big ones is you know for any movement across the world that sort of relies on us or western-led support i mean they're going to be pretty disappointed right that, that to me was 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 it was a big takeaway you know especially in somebody who, who grew up outside the, the quote-unquote west however you you define that i think for progressive people um especially in asia um, you know, you kind of think like, okay, like all these things that we want, like sort of press freedom or sort of free speech or kind of more liberal values, whatever, are uh, sort of embodied um, by these, you know, countries, right? Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people in Hong Kong that we spoke to were very kind of disappointed, right, by by the lack of follow through on, on so much stuff. And to us, that sort of as important a takeaway as sort of Beijing sort of grew we'll to crush Hong Kong as well, right? Um, And I think that's sort of even true when you look at somewhere like Taiwan, where a lot of Hong Kongers had expectation that they would get residency, that they would be able to stay there, especially considering what a big electoral issue Hong Kong 2019 was for the DPP, uh, really sort of helped bolster um, Tsai Ing-wen's victory back then, right? I think, you know, that that there's just been a a lot of disappointment on on that front. And yeah, that was one takeaway we kind of didn't mention earlier on.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Man, I mean, I find similar takeaways. Uh, I think probably from from I mean, having worked on this whole thing uh, together. And I think, you know, I, I try to kind of, um, you know, look at the positives of kind of you know what we saw on the streets and the moments of camaraderie and stuff. You know, it's easy to, to kind of forget about that stuff sometimes. Uh, I think one of our one more you know kind of we all talk big kind of takeaways is the the fragility, I think, of kind of memory, a historical memory here, and, and what we're watching is the government absolutely trying to rewrite and whitewash what what happened. Right? Um, again, I talked about this earlier. This narrative of this, you know, this color revolution. You know, the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce wanted an independent investigation of the police. Right? I mean, businessmen wanted this. Academics wanted this. Right? This was a whole society kind of thing, especially when the police violence got really bad. You know, it, it's it's important not to forget that and not forget the truth about what happened, who's responsible, what the reactions were at the time, because there is a wholesale effort by the Hong Kong government, by Beijing, by Chinese state media uh, to kind of, you know, rewrite this entire thing. Uh, and they're doing it through the court system as well. Uh, the way that they're prosecuting the, the NSL 47 and, and Jimmy Lai, uh, to kind of, again, use that to shape their, their narrative that they'll put down in the history books one day.
2: Now- Shabani and Tim I've taken up a lot of your time but just before you go we've got one traditional new books Network question um what are you working on now uh not another book that really a <laughs> that really a um <laughs> I, think,
3: I think we continue to look at sort of China um you know and and how it's sort of power and economic power and other you know political power manifests itself across the region so it's something that I'm still quite sure this one
1: yeah uh, um working out a little piece about the uh, and Article 23. uh you know, hopefully that will be out soonish ish Um and then yeah, you know, new year. So there's always a lot of big uh big goals and stories you want to write. Hopefully you get around to all of them. Uh, so we'll see uh yeah, we'll see how it goes.
2: No, that's excellent. I'll definitely check that out. Um so just to bring the interview to a close, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Shibani Matani and Tim McLaughlin about their book Among the Braves. Shivani and Tim, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes, thanks okay. so much for having us. Appreciate it.